Good morning, church. Good to see everybody out here this morning. Go ahead and uh, open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. The title of the sermon is Blessed are the Persecuted. And um, I'm going to read verses 3 through 12, though, because it's all one big idea, but the focus of the sermon will be verses 10 through 12. And if you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, um, please do. Starting in verse 3, Jesus the Lord says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that we're able to gather together on this morning freely to be able to sing loudly to you, to pray loudly to you, Lord, to open up our word, open up the Bible, your word, and, and hear it proclaimed to us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your text, because this is a message that is not intuitive to Christians in our land. So help us understand, help us see, remove me as much as possible from this, Lord. May your people be edified. Some of us will be encouraged by this. Some of us will be convicted. We pray in all of it, you just do your work, Lord. And we pray that if there's anybody that does not know you, that they will come to know you today and be saved. And we just pray that you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all this, amen. Please have a seat. I'm going to begin this sermon by quoting a verse from the Bible that every American Christian cherishes, has memorized, and prepares for its reality. And it's 2 Timothy 3.12. says, in fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you probably immediately realized I was joking when I said this is a verse that every American Christian cherishes, has memorized, and prepares for its reality. It's likely the case that a majority of Christians in our nation don't even know that verse is in the Bible. But my purpose is not to dunk on them. My purpose is to ask people who are in this room and people who are listening online, do we know this verse? Do we think about it? Do we prepare for its reality? Do we cherish it? And I know that last one might sound a little crazy, cherishing persecution. But I'm going to tell you, it is not crazy. For many believers in the world right now, this is their life. For apostles, the per, for the apostles, the persecution was a normal part of their life. For millions upon millions of Christians throughout history, this is what normal looked like for them. For the faithful Israelites throughout Israel's history, just read the Old Testament. This was their reality. Think of the prophets. Think of the, the opposition they faced just for proclaiming God's word. But we who were raised in the comfort that we have become accustomed to, well, for us to think that persecution is a normal part of the believer's life, that's a hard pill to swallow. The idea of cherishing it is even harder. So we have to ask ourselves a question. Where should we get our thoughts on this subject? From ourselves or from our Lord? Jesus, in our text this morning, if if you were listening closely when I read it, two different times he says that those who are persecuted are blessed or happy. He also gives two commands concerning persecution. Did you catch them? The commands were rejoice and be glad. That's what he commands us. So if that is not how we think about persecution, then we're wrong. Because the only other alternative is to say Jesus was wrong. And yet that cannot be the case. The fact that Jesus says this in the clearest of terms settles it, but it is still hard for folks in our shoes 
to understand how we are blessed for being persecuted. It's hard to fathom how we could rejoice or be glad that people hate us on account of Christ. Well, good news is Jesus's words in this text this morning is going to help us understand this. How? Well, he's going to tell us two reasons we're persecuted, right? He's going to tell us two reasons we're persecuted. Then he's going to tell us two reasons we're blessed for it or happy for it or flourishing, right? And when you put this together, it totally will make sense then why we can, not just can, we should rejoice and be glad. Now, this morning, we're going to finish Jesus's introduction to the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, his Sermon on the Mount. The introduction, as I've been telling you, is called the Beatitudes, comes from the Latin word beatus, which means happy, flourishing, or complete. And the reason why it has been called this through the ages is because Jesus shouts eight statements that begin with the Greek word makarios. And as I've mentioned, our English translations usually translate it as blessed or blessed in keeping with the old King James uh, translation. But in modern English, it would be better to understand this word makarios as joyful flourishing. It doesn't roll off the tongue as well, but that, that ultimately is what it means. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is answering the question of what the flourishing person is like. What is the person like that pleases God? And he begins by giving us these eight proclamations. Well, we've got through seven of them. This morning, we will finish with the eighth. And collectively, they all make one point. That's why it's been the same point for the last seven sermons and now this eighth one. Collectively, they all mean this. There is a right way to think and live, and it brings flourishing. And what is that right way to think and live? Well, it's all eight Beatitudes. It's all of them put together. But each of the eight gives you a different component of right thinking and right living. Each one explains a lot of what we're going to see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so because of that, each one needs to be understood in its own right. And then we could put them all together. And that's why I did a sermon for each one. It's not like I'm purposely trying to stretch this out. I just felt like that was the way this this needed to be done. And it's my prayer that doing it this way, that it has shown us the right way to think and right way to live. And so with that, let's finish it. Let's look at this final one. And paradoxically, this final one is about persecution. And so the way I'm going to break it down is I'm going to walk us through it in two sections. First, we will look at verse 10, which is the final beatitude itself. Then we will look at verses 11 and 12, where Jesus gives some extra explanation. So look with me first at verse 10. Jesus closes out his magnificent introduction by saying this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, like usual, there is a lot that we could break down from this. He begins with the word blessed, or as I said, flourishing or happy. I want you to think about that. Happy are the persecuted. Does that make any sense? Not at first. It does not make sense. It's paradoxical. If people hate me to the point that they want to destroy me, how can I be happy? If folks persecute me to where I lose my job and therefore I lose my house and me and my family are now subjected to poverty, how can I be flourishing? And those are legitimate questions that need to be answered and and we'll get there. But first, I want to dive a little more just into this word persecuted. It's a participle, which means it acts like a verb in this sentence. And one thing I want to point out is it's in the perfect tense, which does add an extra layer of significance. Otherwise, I wouldn't even tell you that. We don't have a perfect tense in English. So you might be wondering what it means. And it's really simple. It's something that happened in the past, but has an ongoing effect well into the present. I guess it's the gift that keeps on giving. And so because of that, the CSB in most English translations will present this with both present tense and past tense words. If you look closely at it, blessed are those who are, present tense, persecuted, past tense. It's capturing this idea that it's past and present. It's ongoing. Jesus is saying, blessed are those who right now are persecuted and have been persecuted. In fact, The more we understand the Christian life, you're not just going to get persecuted once and then it never happens again. Well, I guess that's possible if they kill you on the first time. But otherwise, no, it's not just going to happen once. It will be a reoccurring theme in your life. 
Now, this verb choice conveys the idea that the moment you swore allegiance to Jesus, our Messiah, at that moment, persecution began. Now, you might say, I didn't feel persecuted on the first day, but listen, a target was placed on your back the moment you bowed your knee to Jesus. And so it did start that day. And from then until now, there have been various times where you likely have taken flack for your faith. And you're going to continue to take flack for your faith. So again, Jesus is saying, happy is this person who is persecuted in this way. But I don't want us to misunderstand this. There are a lot of people out there who are persecuted. So is Jesus saying the mere fact of persecution makes someone blessed? No, that'd be absurd. A person running from the cops after a string of robberies could say the cops are persecuting them. They're pursuing me, right? People who are obnoxious and rude to others and get fired from their jobs could say, well, I'm discriminated against, which is a form of persecution. Some people all, over the, all across the world believe in false gods, and they get persecuted by people who believe in different false gods, right? So the point is, persecution in and of itself isn't what makes somebody blessed. Jesus isn't saying folks are blessed or flourishing simply because they're persecuted. He's going to give us a very important qualifier to his statement, He's going to give us the first of the two reasons why a person will be persecuted. So let's look at the text again. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because, and by the way, because is always a key word. It's going to give you the reason. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of what? Righteousness. That is why we are persecuted. You are blessed or flourishing if you are persecuted for righteousness. And let's not forget what that means. Righteousness means to live in conformity with God's commands. It means doing the things he has commanded us to do, like our brother Carlos was telling us. And it also means to stay away from the things that God has told us not to do. Righteousness is when believers love God so much for his gift of saving us that we now want to live in a way that pleases him. We want to imitate the only perfectly righteous person who ever lived, and that is Jesus our Lord. And so here's the point. When you live righteously, it offends those who do not live righteously. Your life becomes one big neon sign showcasing their own wickedness. I want you to consider the very first murder in history. Cain murdered Abel. We know that, right? He didn't murder him because Abel was snooty. He didn't murder him because Abel rebuked him and said, hey, you should worship God better. Wasn't that at all? What happened is Cain gave God a worthless sacrifice. He offered worthless worship that cost him nothing. He just went through the outward motions. Abel, in contrast, loved God so much that he gave his best to God. It was from his heart. It cost him something. It meant something to him. And so God had regard for Abel, but he ignored Cain's useless outward motions. See, the true righteousness and true faithfulness of Abel shined a bright light on Cain's own wickedness. So in that instance, Cain now had one of two choices. He can learn from this and repent and copy Abel and and love God and and worship him from his heart. Or he could choose to cling to his sin because he doesn't want to give it up. And if he wants to be his own God, his own master, and cling to his sin, he now has two choices with regard to Abel because Abel's righteousness will continually be a reminder of Cain's wickedness. So he could, well, he has to get rid of the reminder. Make Abel stop being righteous. How does he do it? He murders him. That is the first persecution that ever happened in history. And it kind of tells you a lot about all subsequent persecution. Why was Abel murdered? Because he was righteous. And just in case you don't necessarily think that, John the Apostle clears it up. In 1 John 3.12, he tells us not to be like, quote, Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That is why the first persecution happened, because of righteousness. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. And because of that, because evil persecutes righteousness, That is why Paul said the very verse I opened up with, 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, only some people, no, it doesn't say that. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, living a godly life is living a life of righteousness. 
We can only do it in Christ and through Christ. But what I'm telling you is when we do, you will be, we, will, we will be persecuted. Think about it. Jesus, who was better than him? Jesus was perfect and righteous in every way, and yet they persecuted him. Why would it be any different for us? The Apostle Peter tells us the same thing, right? He tells us the same thing. If you look at 1 Peter 4, verse 4, he speaks of the world and says they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living and they slander you. So they're surprised that you're not wicked like them. And then what do they do? They slander you. And we're going to see a little later in our text this morning that slander is a form of persecution. Now, Peter there was writing mainly to former pagans, people who used to be pagans who are now believers. And he's telling them, your former friends are now shocked that you don't want to do those same old sins anymore. And rather than being tolerant as they claim to be, rather than saying, you do you, instead, they slander you. In fact, they will only be tolerant and they will only say you do you if you move to a different kind of unrighteousness. You could leave their unrighteousness. You could go to a different one that doesn't threaten them. So they'll say you do you. That's like going from Hindu to Buddhist. You do you. That's okay to them. But when you turn away from sin, your changed life now shines a bright light on their own sin. And like Cain, they can only think to oppose that light. Now, sometimes... It will be violence like Cain. Sometimes it will be hurtful words like Peter's bringing up here. Sometimes it might just be social distancing. And what I mean is when you're that on-fire Christian at college or at work, your coworkers or your classmates might be polite to you. They might not say anything mean to you, but they intentionally form their hangout groups after work or school without you. And and the reason is your righteousness is not something they want to have to think about because it exposes their darkness. Even that's a form of persecution, as we'll see. Now, sometimes persecution will be threats in the workplace. I remember I was indirectly threatened in the workplace. When I got hired at my second high school that I worked at, my mom was the principal's secretary, and one of the lead counselors there, she knew I was a Christian, and so she went and threatened me through my mom. She didn't come and say it to me, but she told my mom, I know your son's religious, and if he ever, I didn't hear it, I'm just assuming that's what she looked like, but, uh, but and if he ever brings up his, his faith, well, he'll be out of here. Right. And this lady knew my mom for like 15 years and then just goes and says that Um, she's kind of messed up. But but here's the thing. At that school, everything else was permitted. The sexual deviancy there was crazy. The Eastern mysticism all over the place. And there was this liberal world history teacher in the same department as me that had a bumper sticker on her classroom wall that said God is a woman. That was okay. She could say whatever she wanted about God. Okay, but if I were to preach Christ, well, that was off limits. This counselor will make sure I get removed. We'll just let you know I still talked about Christ anyway. Nothing happened to me. I actually preached the full gospel to multiple students throughout that year. Now, something could have happened to me. I'm thankful to God that it didn't. The the head principal, he was a very liberal kind of anti-religious guy. I even had a discussion with him and put some rocks in his shoes in a very polite way to get him to, to think about his worldview. So I didn't care about the threats. I did what I had to do, and thank God I didn't actually get fired. But there are some people who do get fired for doing the same thing. My point, though, is the threat itself from that counselor was a form of persecution, The fact that they literally tolerate everything else but make threats against Christianity is precisely what Jesus is going to be talking about in our text. It's the righteousness of Christians that angers them so much and the righteousness that we represent by pointing them to the perfectly righteous one who is Jesus. So when you consider the reason that Jesus said we would be persecuted, it actually starts to shine a little light on why the persecuted are happy or flourishing. We aren't being persecuted for being evil. We're being persecuted for righteousness. And what that means is if we are being persecuted for that, it means we're living the way God wants us to. It means the world can actually tell the difference between us and them based on our words and our deeds. And that is an encouraging sign because it means our encounter with Christ was real. It was so real that you've changed enough to where it is visible to those who don't know God. 
If you're never being persecuted, I'll bring this up later, it's because the world can't tell you've changed. But if your encounter with Christ was real, then you're going to know it and the world's going to know it. They're going to be able to see it. It's something they could see. And that is why we could be encouraged by persecution when the reason for it is righteousness. So we should not be depressed about it. We should not be intimidated by it. Instead, we should believe what Jesus said about it. He said, you are blessed. The apostle Peter like the other apostles, was sitting at Jesus' feet during this, this very sermon. And he clearly got the memo. He clearly learned because decades later, look what Peter writes in 1 Peter three fourteen. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated. So Peter just repeats the same thing our Lord does here. I guess that's what it looks like to teach people everything Christ commanded them, right? He's doing the same thing here. Now, Jesus doesn't only tell us we're blessed for suffering due to righteousness. He's also going to tell us why we're blessed. So he tells us we're blessed, but he's going to tell us why we're blessed. He gives the first reason. So the first reason we're persecuted is righteousness. The first reason we're blessed is the second half of verse 10. Let's look at it again. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is how Matthew likes to say it. It belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness. Now, I've explained what the kingdom of God is a few times already, and so I'll give a a short explanation here again, but it refers to the sovereign rule of God. It speaks of God's power and his reign breaking through into history where he saves his people and he brings in the perfect age to come. Now, the kingdom is here in part right now because Jesus the king has already come the first time. He conquered sin with his death. He conquered death with his resurrection. In him, our sins are forever forgiven. He already declares us to be new creations in Christ. The end time promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out, he's been poured out upon us. The good news of salvation or the gospel is being announced to all the nations so that Christ will save all kinds of people. That is also kingdom work, kingdom promises. And listen, when all those who are supposed to be saved are actually saved, then Christ will return and consummate the kingdom. In that day, the Bible tells us there will be no more death, no more curse, no more weeping, no more pain, no more suffering. Everything, everything will be made new. And so what a day that will be in the future. But even right now with the forgiveness of sins and us being united with Christ by faith, what a day right now. Great day now, greater day then. Point is, great days all around for those who know Jesus. Even right now, we have the Holy Spirit. Even right now, we have the church, the people of God, where we get to grow in Christ's likeness together. But even better, a day is coming when our faith, because right now it's faith, a day is coming when our faith will be sight. Our faith will be sight. And so the point is this, the kingdom of God is both right now and it is coming. We possess a degree of the kingdom that is here now, and we will possess the kingdom in its fullness when its fullness actually comes. And so the kingdom is ours. And I want you to look at how Jesus says it again. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. That's a possessive word, right? That is possessive language. That means the kingdom of God belongs to us. We own it. It's ours. And he also says it present tense. He says that the the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't say it will be theirs. He says it is theirs. That's right now. We own the kingdom right now. But we will also own it in the future, and what it will be then is even more glorious. And I'll explain that a little more in a minute. But first, I want you to just bask for just a a moment in this reality. This statement here explains why you can be happy when you are persecuted for righteousness. You're not happy because of the persecution. If somebody clocks you in the mouth, you can't be like, oh, man, what a great punch. I'm happy about it. No, that's not what he's saying. Who would be happy about that? You're happy at what the punch points to. You're happy at what the persecution points to. It points to the fact that yours is the kingdom of heaven, that the eternal kingdom of God belongs to you, and that slap is a reminder of it. And that 
is why you can endure persecution. That is why you could even cherish it because it points to something far greater than anything you could ever lose in this world. It points to something that will last forever. And here's why we know, because I said I was going to come back to this, here's why we know this present tense ownership of the kingdom points ultimately to the future. I want you to go and look back at the first beatitude in verse 3. I want you to notice something. This is the one that started it off. And, here, and what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He ends that beatitude, the first one, the exact same way he ends this one. What that means is the phrase for the kingdom of heaven is theirs is an inclusio. And I've brought up inclusios before. I know it's a fancy sounding word. It's a literary device that they would use back then where the author lets you know where a section both begins and ends. And then he lets you know that everything in between those two statements is meant to go together. And so a lot of times we call these bookends. Imagine you have a bookshelf. Well, imagine you have a lot of different kinds of books in your house. Cookbooks, works of fiction, parenting books. And let's say on your bookshelf you want all the cookbooks together. So what you would do is you would take them all on one shelf, you'd put them together, and then you'd put a weighted bookend on the left and a weighted bookend on the right, and it keeps them standing and it holds them together. And what those bookends signify is that everything in between these is about cooking, okay? And, and they all go together and it keeps them separate from the books about parenting or fiction or what have you. So it lets you know these all go together. That's what an inclusio does, and Inclusio does the same thing. So we know the Beatitudes start in verse 3 and they end in verse 10 because Jesus uses the same present tense promise for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And just like bookends lets you know that everything in between goes together, the Inclusio is doing the same exact thing. But it does even more than that. It means that everything that's in between tells you what he ultimately means by the bookends. Okay, so on the bookshelf, right, those bookends means, okay, this is all about cooking. But when you read all those books, it tells you everything you're supposed to know about cooking, right? Same thing with the inclusio. If it's all blocked in by for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, then everything in between is telling you what he means or what he wants you to know about the kingdom of heaven belonging to you. And if you look closely in between these two present tense clauses... Everything in between is future tense, every single one of them. Let me show you the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This is talking about the day that God tells us in Revelation 21, where God wipes away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more, he says. Crying or weeping will be no more. The former things will have been passed away forever. That's not right now, because right now we mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. But they will be comforted, meaning we'll mourn no more when that day comes. Then he says, blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. We don't rule the world right now, not even close. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. The nations still rage against the Lord's anointed. But a day is coming when the redeemed will inherit the world. And I believe included in that, Israel will inherit their land and both together will inherit the world. We will rule with Christ in a perfect world. That day is coming. Right now, the world punishes us. That's why we have to have a gravity conference to figure out exactly how to respond to this. I mean, think about it. Jesus' beatitude is blessed are the persecuted. If we ruled right now, would we be persecuted? So we're not quite ruling yet, and, and I do suggest 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul tells them, oh, I wish we were ruling, because then we'd be kings right now, but we're not. And so the point is, we're not there yet, but that day is coming. He then moves on and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? He says, because they will be filled. Will be filled with what? Righteousness. A day is coming where we will have no sin in us at all. We will live and think righteously all the time. That day is coming. We have it in part right now. I mean, as you know, we have the Holy Spirit. Right now, we have a degree of righteousness, but we still have sin. And you know that. We all struggle with sin. We fight sin. But a day is coming where we will be so filled with righteousness, there's no room for sin. We will be different. He then continues. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they will see God. 
We know we can't see God right now. He's invisible. He dwells in inapproachable light. But a day is coming where Revelation 22 says the redeemed will be in the presence of God and we will behold his face day and night forever. We will see him with our glorified eyes. We will be in his presence forevermore. Then Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Now, We've received some degree of mercy now through forgiveness of sins. But as I mentioned, when we went over that beatitude, mercy is more than just that. It's also taking care of the person's needs, all the needs. Well, guess what? We still die. So that need has to be taken care of. This world is still a dangerous place that hurts us. That need has to be taken care of. So when God gives us mercy in fullness, we will be resurrected so we never die. He'll save our lives through resurrection and he will save us from this cursed world by getting rid of it and giving us a new perfect earth where there is no curse. On that day, we will have total and full and perfect mercy. He then continues, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Now, Paul tells us we're adopted as sons of God right now, but what Jesus is talking about is when we receive our inheritance, when we receive everything that belongs to God, where he just gives it all to us. And that will be the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem itself. We don't have that yet. We have pieces that point to it, but we don't have it yet. And so we know, we know it's coming. So what's my point with reminding us of all these beatitudes in between and their future tense promises? Well, it answers the question, what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is ours right now? It means that we are those right now who will in the future be comforted by God himself in the perfect world to come. It means we will inherit the entire earth in the perfect age to come. It means we will be perfectly righteous. We'll be filled with it when that age comes. It means we will see God all the time with our eyes for the rest of all eternity. And it means we will inherit all that will be his. I mean, as Jesus said, we're going to be sitting with him on his throne as he sits with the Father on his. And you know what that means? We will never be persecuted again. They will never be able to touch us again. So the kingdom being ours right now is the promise of all that other stuff. And being persecuted for righteousness is meant to remind us of everything that will soon be ours, loved ones. It's to remind us of that. It's to point us to that. That is why we can say, that is why Jesus can say, happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. They live differently because they've already been saved by God. And God is going to give them something far greater than this present world. So hang on. Keep on keeping on. This world, as the Bible keeps telling us, is the present evil age. And when you look at the, where that phrase comes up in Scripture, it repeatedly describes the age of sin and death. It's the age when the devil prowls around like a raging lion looking for those to devour, according to 1 Peter 5. And listen, when you live righteously, you're showing them you're not of this world. You are showing them you do not belong to this world or this age. You are a citizen of the world to come. Look how Jesus puts it. I've always found this interesting. In John chapter 15, verse 19, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. That's what our Lord says. You're not of this world. This world right now is the world that hates you because he chose you. That is what he's saying. That is why the world does not love true believers in Jesus. This is why righteous living will continually bring their opposition. It is because righteousness displays the value system, the ethics of the world to come, in which that world, the world to come, is up in opposition to this present evil world. When you are persecuted for following Jesus... All it's doing is telling you every single word of the Bible is true. Every word. And what it means is that every promise that has been made to you as a believer by God, every promise will be yours. Persecution is supposed to remind you of that. When it is rightly understood, persecution actually increases the faith of the mature believer. But we have to understand the reason for it. We have to understand the purpose for it. And I think that if this was all Jesus had to say about this, 
That would be more than enough. I think he's explained why happy are the persecuted or flourishing are the persecuted. But he doesn't stop. He's actually going to roll from this final beatitude into more explanation. And I've always wondered why he did that. And I think it probably has to do with the, the fact that being happy for being persecuted is a hard pill to swallow. So he's going to give us a double explanation. He'll give us a second reason we're persecuted and a second reason we're blessed in verses 11 and 12. So, so let's look at that. We'll start with verse 11. He says this. He says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Now, before we get into specifics here, I want you to notice something kind of peculiar. Jesus changes from the third person to the second person. And if, if you forgot what that means, remember back to third, fourth grade-ish, first person is I, second person is you, third person is them, or he, or her, or what have you. And so if you notice, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Third person, blessed are those guys, right? But now he switches to second person, blessed are you. Blessed are you. And so it is kind of peculiar. Verse 10, he's not, he's not talking to us directly. He's just making these proclamations. And then verse 11, he's talking to us directly. Blessed are you. So what's going on here? Well, first, let me dispel something. Some folks say this is a ninth beatitude. They're wrong. But they say it's a ninth beatitude because it begins with makarios, the word blessed. But as we saw in verse 10, that was an inclusio. 3 through 10, those are the Beatitudes. Those are the borders. Also, verses 3 through 10, third person. Now it's second person. That lets you know it's different. What is happening here is Jesus is transitioning out of the introduction, and he's moving into the body. And for the rest of the body, it's all second person. You, 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 right? That's what he's focusing on. So what he's doing is he's starting that, but... To have a nice little transition, he's still talking about the last subject he covered in the Beatitudes, but now he's directly talking to us, and then that's going to feed into the rest of the sermon. So I just wanted to throw that out there, just in case you were asking, why does he say you? You might not have been asking that, but I read the commentaries, I see the questions, I'm like, okay, something needs to be said. But anyhow, with that being said, right, he is now, what is he telling us about persecution here? There's a couple things. First, he's telling us, that persecution, and this is very important to understand, persecution is not limited to just physical violence. Notice he says you are blessed when people insult you, persecute you, and slander you. And insult and slander are just part of that persecution. If he said blessed are the persecuted, and now he's defining it, he's saying insult and slander are part of that too. That means people speaking evil of you because of your faith, that is persecution. And I think sometimes we have the tendency to think it is only persecution when people are physically attacking us, but that's not true. So by Jesus' own words here, I think it is safe and accurate to say that in America, the church is being persecuted. We sometimes say it's not, but it is. Those who believe what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality, they're called bigots. They get canceled, they get fired from jobs, they get pressured. I remember when actress Ellen Page tried to get people to boycott Chris Pratt so he would lose millions of dollars and not get any jobs. And for what? Not because of anything he said, but just because he went to a lukewarm megachurch that happened to hold to traditional marriage. She tried to get the actor canceled for that. That is persecution. Cake bakers and website designers being sued and having to spend millions of dollars to get all the way to the Supreme Court and to just have to be slandered all those years while they're waiting. That's persecution. If your family members and co-workers slander you, insult you, or treat you poorly because of your Christian positions, that is persecution. Now, of course, we do have to understand persecution exists on a scale. Some of it is worse than others. Being insulted is on the lighter end of the scale. Losing your job is in the middle. Being physically attacked or killed is all the way on the, the heavy side. So this is why we could say our brothers and sisters in China and Iran, they have worse, they face worse persecution than we do. But I do want you to understand this, okay? When persecution begins on a societal level, it always progresses from the light to the heavy. Meaning when you start getting killed 
for being a Christian, that did not just come out of nowhere. It was forecast. If a society starts killing you, it has already been insulting you and firing you from your jobs for some time, for probably quite a few years. That is how Nazi Germany did it with the Jews. You had centuries of anti-Semitic tropes and, and conspiracy theories that the Jews are this and that, where you know the people believed it, it's easy to villainize them, right? So the next step, once Hitler took power, was the Nuremberg Laws. Kicked them out of the professions. Once they couldn't have good jobs, it was less than a decade later where there were the death camps. That's how it works anytime, not just with the Holocaust, but any form of societal persecution. So I want you to think about that. In our society, Christianity is not just starting to be insulted. We've been insulted for a long time. And if you've noticed, the insults have gotten more unhinged, haven't they? When you have a show put on at Dodger Stadium where some drag folks are pretending to be nuns and mocking the Christian faith, that is a much heavier form of insults than even what we were dealing with in the 90s, 80s, and so forth. So we've been getting insulted for a while. It's growing. And then on top of that, we're moving into this middle phase where people are losing jobs and being canceled. Now, there's still some protections, and and there's times where Christians win in the courts. There's times where they lose in the courts. I'd say right now we're still a little more on the winning side, but you guys, come on, we see where it's going, right? We see where it's going, and, and the numbers of the folks in society that are more and more okay with Christians losing their jobs is higher than those who are not. I remember my last couple years as a high school teacher, I was teaching American government. We were going over Supreme Court cases, and I think in my class of 38 students, only two, only two thought it would be wrong to force a cake baker or a photographer to violate their conscience. The other 36 said they should lose their business. And that's the next generation, and that was six years ago. So just, just telling you, the, the, the writing is, is on the wall, and it didn't matter how much logic was thrown there. Once it becomes normal to start firing people and forcing them into poverty for what they believe... The next phase will be physical. So I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling you, let's, let's look at this situation for what it is. My point, though, is to show you that Jesus here is helping us in this verse understand it's still persecution even when you're on the light side or when you're in the middle side. It's not just the heaviest part that is called persecution. It exists on a spectrum. Now, he's going to give us the second reason you might be persecuted. The first reason was righteousness. Look at verse 11 again. Jesus says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because, there's that word again, because, because of me, because of me. So in verse 10, we are persecuted because of righteousness. In verse 11, we're persecuted because of Jesus. Despite the fact that Jesus was the perfect embodiment of righteousness. I mean, he never did anything wrong to anybody. Yet people hate him. And, and let me be, have a little more nuance there. People only like him when they get to redefine him as something they want to accept, like a wise moral sage. But as soon as Jesus is presented as he really is, the Lord, the King of kings, the sovereign over the universe, the only Savior, and the one who will judge the living and the dead, once he's brought forth as that, they hate him and those who proclaim him. I remember when I first started doing street evangelism, Pastor Brian got me, twisted my arm and got me out there, but I'm glad that he did. Because at first you're terrified, but then you start seeing, you really start to see things through the eyes, I would say, of the book of Acts. And what always fascinated me, it's like I walk up to a complete stranger, after three minutes of talking, I got them admitting they're a lying, thieving, adulterous, blasphemous murderer at heart through the Ten Commandments. I'm even telling them this by your own admission, and they're not wanting to punch me in the face. They're kind of all cool with it. And then the moment I bring up Jesus, the moment I bring up Jesus, that is when the objections come. And sometimes, not always, but that when people would get angry, that is when they got angry. And I thought to myself, that's the least offensive part of the message. I've just told you you're an adulterer in heart and you deserve to go to hell. And then I say, but God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to die for your sin so you wouldn't have to and to give you the credit of his righteousness and it's yours as a free gift. How dare you? I'm like, what? That should be the least offensive part of what I just said to you. So why do they get mad at that? 
I mean, nothing will teach you this other than going out and doing it, loved ones. And as I said, you're scared until you do it, but once you do it, you will never unsee what you saw, and it will increase your faith. I promise you. The reason they get mad when you bring up Jesus is because of what Acts chapter 4 clearly says, there is no other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. And that is the one reason why once that name comes up, as beautiful as that name is, That's when the objections start flying. That's when the hearts become hard because that's the only name under heaven by which they could be saved. And again, none of this hurt my faith. It simply showed me that it's all true. That, wait, this is what happens when you read the book of Acts. You know, people get upset at the name of Jesus. The interesting thing is if you said the same thing, they wouldn't get upset at the name of Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, or anyone else. It's only the name of Jesus. Why? It's as I already said, Jesus the Messiah is the only name under heaven by which anyone will ever be saved. And that's where the opposition comes from. So Jesus says, blessed are you, or you will, or you are blessed when they insult you, persecute you, and slander you because of me. Jesus tells us this also in Matthew 24, verse 9. And I believe this passage, he's kind of telling us what's going to go on to the end of the age. And he says, they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And he tells us in the next few verses, this will continue to go on until all the nations are reached. And so this is the expectation. You're going to be hated by all people because of Jesus's name. And Peter, again, he was one of the three people that Jesus gave that direct teaching to. And Peter experienced this firsthand as a good disciple. And so he's going to write to us a little later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. He says this, he says, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. And whose name? Christ. Christian. We're little Christ. We follow Christ. Okay? Let us glory, glorify God in having that name. So Peter makes it clear in the first line there that we're blessed just for being ridiculed. Again, the, the verbal persecution. We're, we're, we're blessed for being ridiculed on account of Christ. It, it proves we're saved. He says the Spirit of God rests on you. But then he escalates it and says if you suffer, which I think is moving to the heavier forms of persecution, he says, well, then glorify God in that name, Christian, which means in the name of Jesus. And notice we're not just called to endure. We're called to glorify God. Now, Jesus is going to make the same point, just with different words in verse 12. Here, he's going to give us the second reason we're blessed, right? So first reason we're persecuted is righteousness. Second reason is because of Jesus. First reason we're blessed, kingdom of heaven is theirs. Second reason we're blessed is he says we will receive a great reward. Look at verse 12. He says, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, there's a couple things we need to we need to note here. First, Jesus makes two commands. He says, "Be glad and rejoice." In Greek, those are in the imperative mood, which means they are commands. They're not suggestions. They're not tips for a better life. This is our Lord, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and has given this command: "Be glad and rejoice." This is why at the beginning I said if we don't glorify God and and cherish what the persecution points to, then we are thinking wrongly about it. Jesus commands us to be glad. Rejoice means to celebrate it. And, And remember, he's not telling you to celebrate the pain or the persecution itself. Again, that hurts. He's telling us to celebrate what it is pointing to. In verse 10, it shows you that the kingdom is yours. Peter in 1 Peter 4.14 says it's telling you, you have the Holy Spirit. You could rejoice in that. And now here in verse 12, he's telling you also you could be glad and rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. And when Jesus says in heaven, he's not talking about a location like the reward is hidden in heaven. Matthew tends to use heaven. I'm going to use a a million dollar word. He uses heaven a lot as a circumlocution for God, meaning because he was writing to a Jewish audience and they were sensitive about saying the word God, 
He would minimize it sometimes, and if he could use another word in the place, like kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God, he would. So when he says your reward is in heaven, he's saying your reward is with God. And what is your reward? You go back to the Beatitudes. Everything mentioned there, perfect comfort, ruling a perfect world, being resurrected with the perfect body filled with perfect righteousness to live in that perfect world, seeing God with your perfect eyes all the time, inheriting everything that belongs to God. That is a great reward, and it comes with God, comes with him. So if persecution is a reminder of all of that, then yeah, I think we could be glad when it happens. We could say that this insult on account of Christ means that one day I will rule the world. I could tell myself that. I could say that a lawsuit aimed at destroying my business means that, hey, you know what? One day I'm going to see God with my own eyes, and this is proof of it. This reminds me of it. Physical attacks, if I get clocked for the Lord, means, hey, one day I'm going to sit with Christ on his throne as he sits with the Father on his. As long as that's at the forefront of my mind, I can rejoice. We can rejoice when we are being persecuted. And listen, the apostles understood this, and it did not take them to become old men to understand this. They grasped this very early in their faith. In fact, after the first time they got physically beaten for the faith, this is the first time. Look at how they respond. Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. It says, After they called the apostle, called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name, the name of Jesus. So they get the snot beat out of them. I remember when I was a young Christian, I'm like, so they just got jumped for the most part. And now they're all like doing cartwheels and they're happy about it. I'm like, what's wrong with these guys? Now I get it. Now I get it because of what it points to. And they understood what Jesus taught way back here. Okay, the reason they rejoiced is they understood everything Jesus is saying in these verses this morning. And this is why the church throughout history has grown the most and been the strongest during persecution. The world usually thinks it weakens us with this. But you notice the opposite always happens. True believers will understand what Jesus is saying here. I'm going to tell you something. And again, this sounds hard for us in a comfort, comfortable society. But the worst thing that the world can do to us is accept us and make us rich. That is the worst thing they could do to us because it has done that a couple times in history. And whenever it has done that, the church becomes weak and hypocritical. The church before Constantine and after Constantine were very different churches. And we've just seen this kind of thing. It becomes weak, it becomes hypocritical, it becomes about this world and money and all that kind of stuff. But when the church stands for Christ faithfully, then persecution is what results. And from that thing comes true joy. Why? Because when you're being persecuted in this world, it makes you want this world less. And this is the world that is passing away, according to 1 John uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is the one that that is passing away. So we're not to to be in love with this world. And and it makes me think of Ecclesiastes, right? We chase after all of our goals, all the things we want to achieve, money, inheritances, education, fame, whatever it might be. And even Christians in our society were drawn towards that. Solomon got it all. And then what did he call it? A chasing after the wind, vanity, uselessness. He had to get old to realize that, oh, this is all meaningless. We don't have to let it happen that way. We could just listen to Jesus. And when the persecution comes, we're like, you know what? Why would I want this world anyway? I'm about to get something that can never be taken from me. And that's the point. That's the point. That is why we could rejoice. Persecution helps us set our eyes on the things above. It helps us set our focus on our treasure being with God. Because what will Jesus say a little later in the sermon? Where our heart, where our treasure is, there our heart is. If your treasure's in this world, your heart's in this world. If your treasure's with God, then your heart is with God. Persecution helps you want this treasure less and that treasure more. That's another reason it can be a blessing. And so we can rejoice and be glad when the world keeps giving us more proof that we belong to God rather than Satan. And so that is worth celebrating. Now, Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians uh, verse 4, verse 17. This is one of my favorite verses. It's definitely worth meditating on a lot. He says, For our momentary light affliction, 
is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Now think about that. Why can we rejoice? Because persecution is a momentary light affliction. It might feel long-lasting, but it's momentary. Persecution can only last decades, but your reward lasts forever. And so as a thought experiment, I would ask you to imagine drawing out a line, and you can't actually do this, but drawing out a line, you split that line at a certain point. You put 70 years on one side of that line and 100 trillion on the other side of that line. The 70 represents how long you could be persecuted. The 100 trillion isn't even close to the bliss we're going to get. But let me ask you something. If you have 100 trillion years on one side of the line and 70 on the other, will you even be able to see the 70? It will be less than a dot. And if you pulled out a microscope and tried to find it, you still couldn't find it. And that's just comparing this life to 100 trillion years. 100 trillion years is still infinitely less than the eternity that we will have that bliss. That is why Paul could say this is a momentary light affliction and it is incomparable to the eternal weight of glory. And the persecution produces in us that eternal, incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So yes, that is another reason we can be glad, another reason we could rejoice. And if all that isn't enough to encourage us in the midst of persecution, Jesus then gives us one more reminder, not so much a reason, but just one more thing that he he reminds us. And, And so he ends verse 12 by saying this. He says, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you being insulted and persecuted, that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What the Lord is saying is when you are persecuted on account of Christ and for living righteously, Jesus is telling you, you are in a long line of heroes. You are walking in step with guys like Abel and Joseph and Job and King David, Elijah, Isaiah, Malachi, John the Baptist. Jesus is simply reminding his Jewish audience what they already knew at this point. They all had the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, guess what? The prophets were almost never listened to. Only the faithful remnant listened to them when the majority persecuted them. And so let me just quote Second Chronicles 36.16 to prove that. This is Old Testament. It says, But they kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets, until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. So they were never listening to the prophets. And Jesus is saying it's going to be the same with us. We are God's messengers of Christ to the world. So what can you expect? They're going to ridicule us. They're going to despise God's words. They're going to scoff at us. They're even going to try to silence us with violence. And Jesus is telling you when that happens, rather than despairing, he's saying, remember, you're in good company. You're in the company of all of God's true prophets. So let me ask you, whose company would you rather be in? The world's? They might have it comfortable now, you know, but you'd rather be in their company? Those who rebel against God and have no place in the world to come? Those who will stand before the great white throne of judgment and be rightly condemned? No, it's much better to be in the company of those that the world treats as nothing, but those whom God will give everything. The author of Hebrews puts it in a very interesting way. He tells us of this, you know, you know, Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith. He's telling us of this amazing legion of people that we are joining. And look at what it says in verses 11 or chapter 11, verses 36 through 38. It says, others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. Now, at first you read that and you're like, that's a harrowing description. But notice God's assessment in verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. The world's not worthy of them. Loved ones, we are part of the company that is, the world's not worthy of us. If you believe in Jesus, this world's not worthy of you. You're actually too good for it because of what God has done in you, right? That is what the author is saying. And Jesus is saying, we're like those prophets who came before us. 
So knowing that is how God thinks of us, knowing that is how God esteems us, is that not cause for us to be glad and rejoice? Is that not cause for us to agree with Jesus that happy are the persecuted? After all, persecution simply reminds us that a sinful world despises what God esteems. So if they despise you, it's because God esteems you. That is a great reminder. If God is for us, then ultimately who can be against us? No one. We're going to inherit the world. So take cheer, Christian. Our Lord Jesus has overcome this world, and he will come for us and bring to us an even better world. And so, loved ones, as we ponder what Jesus has taught us this morning, I hope and pray that we agree with what he teaches us about persecution, that we are flourishing or blessed because of it, that the kingdom is ours, and we have a great reward that's coming. What more do we need? Now, I do think it's possible, though, that some folks might wonder, well, hold on, what if I'm not persecuted at all? What if I'm never persecuted? Does that mean I'm not living a godly life in Christ Jesus? And my answer is yes. Now, I want to unpack it a little bit. Jesus doesn't say you're always being persecuted. In fact, in verse 11, he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. And the Greek word also means whenever. Listen, nobody's getting persecuted 24 hours a day, seven days a week for their whole life. But he's saying when it does happen, because it will, then you're blessed. But it's not happening all the time. But when it does happen, remember what it points to. That's why you're blessed. Your reward is great. So that should let you know that if you're not being persecuted at this exact second, you don't need to worry. He says when it happens, not if, when, it will, okay, but it's not happening all the time. And then the second thing I want you to remember is ridicule and insults and ostracization. I wasn't going to say that because I can never say it right. But anyway, those are persecution. Those are persecution too. So don't think only in terms of violence, So what I mean when I say if you're never persecuted, something's wrong. Yeah, if you are never ridiculed, never insulted, never sneered at, not even once because of your faith, then something has to be missing. Something has to be missing. My suspicion would be when folks, when that's their experience, they're likely hiding their Christianity. Which shows that there's a a, a little bit of I'm ashamed of Christ. I have a, a fear of man. If you, and some people, you know, might not hide their Christianity, but they might minimize their righteousness so that they don't seem transformed or different. They're hiding how transformational it is to be a Christian. And I would say in that sense, a person would be more worried about what people think than what God thinks. And Jesus warns us of this in Luke chapter six, which is Luke's rendition of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Luke six twenty six, woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. So Jesus told us when we're persecuted, which means insulted or slandered or any of that, then we're with the real prophets. But when everybody speaks good of us, that's how he spoke of the false prophets. And so then we would be with the false prophets in in, in that case. And so my advice is this. Just be a faithful Christian. You don't have to look for persecution. If you're obnoxious about your faith, that's foolish. So don't be obnoxious about your faith. Don't be abrasive. Simply love God and love your neighbor. Obey the things of the Lord. Talk about your Lord. Pray for people. Evangelize. Speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. Be gracious, merciful, and compassionate. Imitate our Lord Jesus. And I'm promising you, if you do that, you will be persecuted in some way. Not by everybody. Some people will appreciate you. But there's going to be some people that won't. Trust me. There's nobody who's living on point that doesn't at least get it from somebody. Okay? And so may we press on loving our Lord and living faithfully for him. For indeed, our reward in heaven is great. And for any unbeliever here, I have a different exhortation for you. People often claim that they they, they don't want to believe in Jesus because Christians, we're we're a bunch of hypocrites. But I'm going to tell you something. That's not the main reason we're despised. Sometimes people despise us for it. Um, But we're actually more hated when we're not hypocrites. 
Because then again, we give the world no excuse to continue in their sin. It's our righteousness that the world hates the most. And honestly, it's not about hypocrisy to to any unbeliever, and I'll tell you why. I don't see unbelievers getting mad at Buddhist hypocrites, Muslim hypocrites, atheist hypocrites, only Christian hypocrites, which means it's not actually about hypocrisy. And let's just be real. Ultimately, this is about Jesus, who was not a hypocrite. Jesus is no hypocrite. He did nothing wrong. He was perfect in every way. He's loving. He's faithful. He sacrifices himself for us. What he asks of us is a trillion times less than what he was willing to do and give for us. So if he is that good and that loving and that perfect, perfect in every way, then why do you reject him? It's not because of hypocrisy. The problem is not that. The problem is with God himself. The problem is with his perfect Messiah. It is with righteousness. Because righteousness exposes wickedness. It reminds you that the judgment is coming. And so the best way to put it out of your mind is to despise Christ and his followers. And this is nothing new. Why do you think both Jews and Gentiles who normally hate each other 2,000 years ago conspired and agreed and united on only one thing? to nail him to a cross. It's because the heart hates righteousness. But let me tell you something. If you reject Christ, it's because your heart is like theirs. But it doesn't have to remain that way. You don't have to keep doing this. Jesus invites you to his end time feast. He tells you that if you repent and believe in him, that salvation is yours. He calls on you to turn away from your sin and to turn to him in faith. And he will He promises he will. He'll give you the perfect credit for his perfectly righteous life. He will forgive you of your sins because he paid for every last one of them. He paid the penalty for everyone who believes on him. And he gives us this as a free gift. And if you do come to him, he will change your heart and he will make you that new person to where you will want to live righteously. So unbeliever, what are you waiting for? Stop raging against him. Bow your heart to him, bend your knee to him, come to him and be saved. It's a simple matter. We're going to pray. You could pray to the Lord and tell Jesus, I'm turning away from my sin. I'm coming to you. I truly believe everything the Bible says about you. Save me. And if you mean it, you will be saved and you will be different and you'll inherit all this amazing stuff. Your reward will be great. The kingdom of heaven is yours, but only if you turn away from your sin and believe on him now. So, We're going to pray. Again, you could do that uh, between you and God. And then afterwards, come and talk to me or any of the leaders because there's there's more we would want to tell you. Um, We're going to pray now. And then we're going to have the worship team come back up. We got two cool things that are about to happen, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to give a little explanation about both of those. But let's pray. Lord God, we just uh, thank you so much, so much for you being Lord being king. And Jesus, we thank you for you teaching us something that we need to hear because because the world hates you and has hated you ever since the fall. And because you've saved us out of the world and the world's going to hate us, you loved us so much to tell us that, hey, this isn't abnormal. This is what the world does to those you've chosen. And we could redeem the way we think about it. We could be glad and we could rejoice because we could then start remembering what it points to, which is the blessing and the reason we're blessed because the kingdom is ours and our reward will be great. Let us never forget that, Lord. Let us understand what it's meant to point to so that we could endure and be those who please you and obey that great commission and go and continue to proclaim you and make disciples of you both here and in every nation. We pray all this to you, God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.